Hello, everybody. I am here today with author Amy Greck. Amy, thanks for taking some time out of your day to chat with me. Thanks for having me, Steve. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, really excited that we were able to have our schedules meet up and sit down for a conversation. Definitely. So for people who aren't familiar with you or your work, can you tell us about can you tell us a little bit about what you've done and the kind of work that you write the kind of work you've done? Sure, absolutely. I've been uh, publishing uh, mainly in the horror genre for over 20 years. And um, then more recently, I branched out into writing crime fiction. I had a book that was published, a uh, collection entitled Rage and Redemption, Alphabet City. It's actually newly out of print. Uh, that publisher and I parted ways. And I'm just going to take the high road here because I've, I've pulled it off my website. Um, but I will say that that freed up a lot, two novellas and uh, a lot of stories. And I've sent the uh, novellas out to another publisher and they're under consideration. And the uh, stories um, either may find homes in different anthologies, magazines, or uh, and then be reprinted in another collection. Hmm. So when when you send those out to a publisher, do they run that by you before it's published in a like in a magazine or another publication? Do you get a heads up on where it will be, or do you have approval on where they whether it'll be published? Uh, yes. Um, so my uh, I actually had three short story collections published. Up, we'll go back, 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 back in time. Um, the first one was published by Two Backed Books back in 2006. It was entitled Apple of My Eye. It was mainly horror stories. I've written a couple of horror science fiction hybrid stories, um, which were fun as well. Um, and so just really briefly, because Two Backed Books went out of business, they folded, unfortunately. Mm. And then the rights to that collection reverted back to me. Uh, so I found another publisher, um, and then when all is said and done, because when I'm assembling a collection of my stories, um, I'm able to choose the order and usually the publisher will not argue unless they really want to lead with a certain story. Um, so I retitled that collection and it had two new stories when it was published in 2009 with, um, Damnation Books. Um, who I wouldn't be surprised if you hadn't heard of them because they also folded. The um, editor had a, a health issue in her family. Oh, no. Um, yeah, so uh, she she didn't want to uh, become one of those publishers who can't keep up. So she uh, let all the authors know. And... Um, then in between 2009 and 2015, when uh, my uh, collection of crime fiction came out, in between I've had over 100 short stories published wow. in various magazines and anthologies. Yes, I, uh, I run the gamut. I've also had a few poems published more recently. I had a poem in an anthology. It's a series. It's called The Hells Series in April Gray. Here in New York City is the editor. And um, her idea for last year was um, Hell's Mall. 
So stories that take place in a mall, M-A-L-L. But then, of course, you know, my writer's mind went to mall, M-A-U-L. So I wrote uh, actually a poem. And it's, I don't know if you remember that drink, um, Orange Julius? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's the title of my poem. Um, And it it sort of gives uh, the reader a bird's eye view of the the mall circa 1980-something. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, and then there's a violent incident. I don't want to uh, give too many spoilers, but it was a very fun one to write. It's also a, a rhyming poem. Uh, most of the poems that I've written do rhyme. They have a, a, a rhyme a rhyme scheme. Um, and there, there's probably even a more eloquent word than that than rhyme scheme that I'm forgetting. I was an English major way back in uh, back in the day, I'll just say, at Ithaca College in upstate New York. Um, and, for, you know, feel free to rein me in if I go off on a tangent. No, I'm no, it's, I'm enjoying yeah. it. All right, great. Uh, so um, that's me uh, continuing to evolve as, as an author. I actually wrote... Uh, Two of my poems started out in a little notebook, um, like this one. I always carry around with me. And uh, another poem of mine, um, really briefly, was entitled uh, Machine Gun Latte. And allow me to explain, um, back before COVID, when I still lived in the city full time, I'm working on moving back, but it's taking forever and a day. Uh, That could be a whole other conversation, so I'm not going to belabor that point but um so i would go back to long island where i am now uh the irony but anyway i would take the train the long island railroad and so in penn station uh this was i wrote this poem right after 9 11 like a year after they had for security they have national guard soldiers um positioned throughout penn station and they have ak-47 machine guns and one of them actually had a Starbucks cup, the white cup, the iconic cup in one hand. In the other hand, he, you know, he, on the shoulder, he had his machine gun and they have their trigger finger like at the ready, I guess. They're supposed to or out of habit he did. And so I, I noticed him when I was rushing to catch a train. And then on the train, because it's an hour and a half um, from where I am now to the city. And that's just a Penn Station. Um, then to go on the subway, it's, yeah, so that's why I really want to get back. Cause I went back four times this month oh, and wow. it took me three hours to get back here one way because after a certain time, the train, um, is very staggered for the time that it will go places. So that was quite challenging. But, but, um, so I wrote that poem, Machine Gun Latte, the first draft in a notebook. And actually, it was published in um, the Harbor Writers Association. We have a New York chapter, and it's members who live anywhere in New York. New York is a very large state. So um, they were looking for poems, and mine happened to be the, excuse me, mainly stories, and mine happened to be the only poem um, set in various parts of New York. Some of the other stories are set in the Hudson Valley, New York City, of course, um, Long Island or another suburb off the top of my head. Uh, so that's actually a good segue. Um, are you familiar with the Horror Writers Association? I'm not, no. 
Oh, okay. Oh, it's an amazing organization. I think I found them through an ad in uh, Poets and Writers, no, Writers Digest, probably, magazine. I used to subscribe to the physical magazine in the um, 90s, mid-90s. And so I joined, and um, they used to have their annual convention in New York City, and now they have it all over um most recently, it was in Rhode Island, and I took a road trip on Amtrak train with other riders. Uh, and then in Michigan, uh-huh. yeah, Michigan before the pandemic. So I flew to Michigan. Um, the air is so clean there. But uh, <laughs> to circle back a little more, uh, the Harbor Rights Association is actually a uh, global nonprofit organization for riders. And uh, I think we have over 2,000 members worldwide and growing. And uh, you'll love this story. When we had the meeting in New York City, I had just met Harlan Ellison one year. And I was fresh out of college, so I didn't have a lot of spending money with me because I was still I was coming in from Long Island just for the day to the hotel, which was the Warwick Hotel. <laughs> Excuse me. And after I had just met Harlan Ellison, I went to buy a T-shirt that the uh, HWA was selling. And it was really cool. It was a, a red T-shirt with black lettering, a haunted house, bats flying, and their logo. And um, so I was $5 short or something like that. And Harlan Ellison pulled a $5 bill out of his wallet, and he slammed it into my hand. And he said, here, now you can buy your damn T-shirt. <laughs> So that was that was pretty amazing. Um, I've met other uh, living legends over the years, Jack Ketchum, mm. um, who I befriended as well, and uh, we would go to different conventions. I'd meet him with other writers, and um, he passed away sadly a few years ago. Um, but he always drank Dewar's Rocks Scotch. And at one convention, ChillerCon in New Jersey, a fan gave him um, uh, Johnny Walker, which I know because my father used to drink. It's like a a premium scotch. Mm-hmm. And um, I really don't care for scotch, but, you know, uh, Jack wanted to share um, with me and some of the other writers that he knew who were there. And he said, oh, let's all have a toast to the con or something like that. And. So he got some plastic cups and I, I had some and like, wow, it's like liquid fire when you're not used to drinking a certain kind of alcohol, right? I was like, yeah. and I didn't want to be like choking on it, like a spaz. So I was like trying to sip it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I recommend the uh, Horror Rights Association um, because of uh, the pandemic, StokerCon is what they renamed um, the annual convention. Oh, okay. A few years ago, I think they uh, renamed it in 2016. And uh, James Chambers is one of the co-chairs. He's a great guy. I've known him for over 20 years. Um, We used to meet up in New York City in the late 90s, but it was never structured. We would just meet uh, for drinks and dinner. But then we were um, in the second iteration of the New York chapter. Jim had uh, sort of brought it back to life, pun intended. 
<laughs> and uh, more recently, he has a, a great co-chair, a co-coordinator. Um, I forget the language that I like to use, but her name is Carol Geisander. And um, she lives in Jersey, but there's not a New Jersey chapter of the HWA yet. And she lives really close by train or car. Um, so I've known her for um, a couple years as well. She's really smart. She's um, really great at, at helping uh, Jim. And what we do, again, before the pandemic, we used to have readings at different bars in New York City. Mm. And sometimes more than one, once a month. And um, also we used to go to New York City Comic Con before the pandemic the Brooklyn Book Festival. Um, and uh, now, of course, we've pivoted like everyone, like we're doing a stream yard. Yeah. Um, we meet over Zoom once a month. And uh, Jim and uh, Carol are phenomenal co-hosts of a uh, once monthly reading series entitled Galactic Terrors. Mm. It streams uh, the second Thursday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, I've read a couple of times and I, I try to support the other authors, except last month I was in the city doing all the things. So I missed, <laughs> I missed the July Galactic Terrors. I actually did go back and watch it because it is on YouTube. But normally you can do a live chat with the other people who are attending. Yeah, on uh, YouTube. So um, that's one way that we've uh, kept in touch, myself and the other members of, of my group. And more recently, there was an in-person reading at, at a um, ice cream shop called the uh, Ample Hills Creamery in Brooklyn. Oh, that's oh, awesome. It was, yeah. And so I got to uh, reconnect with some of the members of my writers group uh, in real life. Um, but again, because I'm stranded in the suburbs, I had quite an adventure getting there an Uber, on a drive to the train station. I won't give you the whole rundown, but even though it was exhausting, it was worth it. You know, because oh, I had to go back. I had to go back to Long Island the next night, the same night. So um, yeah, uh, it it was great. Uh, you know, nothing beats an in person reading. So uh, let's hope that the Delta variant doesn't um, take hold too severely. Scary. Let's, let's hope oh, yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's my little intro. Um, I guess I went off and I, I might have covered some of your other questions, actually. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Uh, so, so from your perspective, perspective as a woman in the industry, how has the industry changed? Great question. Um, when I started out in the mid nineties, um, a lot of publishers were used to publishing primarily male authors. So they were kind of, they didn't know what to make of me. Um, that here's this, uh, really enthusiastic young woman and we, we like her stories, but you know, there was some hesitancy on their part to publish women but then they uh started to come around and uh as far as conventions there used to be a convention on long island it doesn't exist anymore but it was called icon it was more science fiction but they had some uh 
horror panels that I would speak on and uh, with other authors, like not just me. Um, so yeah, I, I met other female horror authors and science fiction authors or speculative authors at Icon, Linda Addison uh, for one. And then the, uh, as I touched upon earlier, the um, meeting uh, the horror writers used to have in New York City. And then I went to World Horror Con back in 1998 in Georgia. I met Ed Lee. Um, wow. He's really sweet in real life. Um, so as time went on, um, I would start doing readings at these, uh, live conventions. And at first, uh, you know, the other male authors were like, oh, who are you here with? Like, you know, like, who's your boyfriend or who, mm. who's your husband? They didn't, they didn't get it that I was actually there as a female horror author up and coming at the time, granted. But, uh, I said, oh no, I'm actually reading at 3 PM and, and if want to check it out, you know, come, come and see what's, what I'm going to be doing. And, and some of them did some of the male authors and they're, they were like, wow. Um, you know, they, they didn't say it out loud, but it was kind of implied like, wow, I didn't know a woman could write hmm. such, you know, like provocative horror. Um, but then uh, in the, 2000s, early 2000s, it um, progressed uh, so that more publishers were open to um, publishing from, you know, work from female authors. And sometimes I would get a close but no cigar, personalized rejection. And some editors were actually open to me um, sending them my revision. Hmm. which is always nice. And then sometimes I would sell it and then other times I wouldn't. But even to this day, if a story or a poem of mine is rejected at one market, I'll go back like maybe a week or two later or maybe even a month later. And then I'll, I'll actually see what, what didn't work in hindsight. And then, you know, like with the plot or characters or, you know, like some, uh, egregious error of logic, even though it's fiction, <laughs> you know, like this one character was sitting down and then 10 pages later, he's like, like running out of the room, but we don't know why and things like that. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's good to, uh, you know, that I've matured because when I was first starting out, I just wanted to maybe get the stories out before they were ready and they would even end too abruptly it would sometimes be the feedback I would get from editors, but, um, and now in, uh, 2018, uh, Stoker Con in Rhode Island, we actually had a panel, all female horror authors, uh, myself, Megan R. Curie, April Gray, uh, Elizabeth, uh, Massey. I'm trying to remember who else was on. It was a couple of years ago now, but, um, we packed the room, the audience, you know, it, there wasn't an empty seat in the, you know, uh, conference room in this hotel. And it, that was very gratifying first, you know, first and foremost that, and it wasn't just all women in the audience. There were a lot of male authors wanting to see, uh, what we had to say. So that was, uh, pretty exhilarating. And actually I, I touched upon it, um, before we went live and you see the cover of the one that got away anthology that you've, um, thank, I'm glad you could embed that. 
Um, and Candisha Press is an all-female uh, publisher. Uh, mm -hmm. All of their anthologies um, have female authors or uh, authors who identify as female as contributors. And it's, it's run by uh, two uh, amazing uh, women, uh, Jill, and I'm going to bungle her last name, uh, Jill Guerreri. And um, uh, she just added her female partner in crime. Um, and I'm, I'm blanking on the other, um, the other woman's name off the top of my head, unfortunately. Uh, but they know, they know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> they know who they are. Uh, recently with, especially with the pandemic and everything else going on, Amazon seems to have, has a bigger, a bigger place in our lives in general, but it seems like in publishing too. How has Amazon and self-publishing changed the industry? I would say that um, more authors, even before the pandemic, uh, like for example, April Gray, the editor I mentioned, she um, self-publishes all of the Hell's Mall anthologies on uh, Amazon and also on Smashwords digitally. Mm -hmm. um, so Amazon really has... Um, opened a door, pun intended, uh, for more authors who, who maybe don't want to deal with all the uh, proverbial red tape that comes along with uh, working with a traditional publisher. Um, you know, you have to wait for them to review your manuscript. Sometimes it could be six months later mm -hmm. before they take you on. Uh, really um, short sidebar that's relevant again i'm going to take the high road different publisher um assigned a contract with them for a crime novella of mine set in new york city and they had a year to publish it so the year came and went or came it came close to being up to a year and i messaged them on on social and they said hey um, i'm really excited when are we going to get going and they said Oh yeah, we're five months behind. I said, no, I have a contract that said you were going to publish by this date. The date is going to be like next week. And this was before the pandemic. And they said, I said, can I, I want you to uh, agree in writing to revert my rights back to me. And then I, sorry, I got to take it elsewhere. And they understood. I was kind of unfortunate, but uh, you know, it, it, and then would get burned. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but back to um, back to what you were you were asking um, about uh, self-publishing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, they have a new platform um, for serials. Um, what is it? It's called uh, Vela, I think. Hmm. And some of the authors I know are doing it. I should actually ask them how, how it's working out for them. Um, it's, a, it's a great concept because, you know, even though, well, more people are trying to go out and do all the things again. But I was going to say when, when people were home almost all the time, they could look at a story on their Kindle or if they 
you know, wanted a physical book. I still prefer physical books. Maybe that's because as an author, royalties are higher for uh, print sales hmm. versus uh, Kindle sales. Um, little trick of the trade you may may or may not have known. Um, and I'm a little older, uh, so I grew up reading physical books, so maybe that's part of it as well. Um, but yeah, Amazon really has uh, has made it easier for um, authors, as I touched upon, who are sort of um, gun shy as far as not wanting to get burned by a con- you know a contract, and uh, the publisher is about running behind, or they don't have creative control over the cover art. Sometimes that happens with publishers. Uh, that happened with one of my collections. I didn't like the cover at all. It even happened to Jack Ketchum back in the day. Uh, I forget which novel of his, but it had a, a cheerleader, a skeleton cheerleader hmm. on the on the cover. And he said, oh God, I hated that cover. Uh, but he didn't have the 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 writer in his contract that would let him, you know, say, Oh, I want to choose the cover art. So, Mm -hmm. uh, in that regard, Amazon, you know, the, either the, the author who's self publishing can hire like a graphic designer to create a cover or a lot of authors wear many hats and they can design the cover themselves. Yeah. (laughs) It's, It's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah lot of work i'm sure yes but you know some authors prefer that to, to have their hands in every aspect of of their book or anthology or chat book yeah what are some of the most unethical practices in the publishing industry well the biggest defender would be um publishers who don't pay royalties where um the authors have to get legal you know, they have to get legal representation. Um, and that actually happened with, uh, I think it was Disney, Walt Disney a few years ago. And there was a big camp, no, months ago, excuse me. There was a big campaign on social, um, the Horror Writers Association, the Science Fiction Writers, uh, CIFWA, um, were uh, really going after Disney. And I, I think it's still, you know, being... Uh, mitigated but uh it was a bad that's a bad bad scene but you know disney they they were trying to figure oh authors just will will fall head over heels to work with disney and have it on their in their bio on their resume or and yeah no um a lot of authors are not savvy authors are not going to fall for that Hmm. Um, another, uh, unsavory practice is like I said, not honoring a contract. And luckily I, I got my rights reverted back to me, but I've known authors who've actually had to get a lawyer or they have a lawyer in their family and the lawyer can, can, you know, has to go after the publisher. It could wow. be quite expensive. So when you receive a contract from a publisher, do you, review and do you read it and sign it or do you usually have either other people or a lawyer read it before you sign it when i first started out um one of my uncles is an environmental attorney but he also does uh entertainment law like on the side Hmm. um so i did give him one contract 
for example, um, a film production company that's very well known, I won't say which one again, taking the high road, but they wanted to um, acquire one of my short stories. And then my uncle said, oh yeah, no, they, they don't want to pay you. They just want to uh, maybe flash your name on the screen, like based on the story by, and I'm like, oh yeah, no, I know authors who get stories options uh, for film or TV. So, but the way it was written, it was the con this particular contract, this was over 20 years ago, but I vaguely remember it was, you know, very flattering, obviously. And um, you had to read between the lines and my uncle helped me do that. And then uh, I couldn't bother him with every contract, you know, he's a partner in a, a firm in Connecticut, but uh, then I got savvy and I, I have gone back uh, to publishers and say, uh, you know, uh, no, I, I need to adjust this clause or can we omit this? And if they don't want to do that, then it's a red flag, hmm. in my opinion. Um, similar note, really quickly, I am a, uh, for my day job, I'm a full-time freelance online marketing uh, SEO, search engine optimization and content strategy specialist. And I mentioned it because I got burned in that um, arena starting out. And so now I get a retainer of 50% for various projects because sometimes people, and this was even before COVID, but now with COVID, like someone in their family could have, the client could have uh, COVID and then they're gonna stop the project. But I've already gotten 50% up front. Oh. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally uh, in the doghouse financially. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, you live and learn. But yeah, I, I'm not shy. I will um, request changes to a contract before I sign it. Are they usually pretty responsive when you, when you want something changed or does it just vary between each publisher? It varies. And as I said earlier, if they don't want to amend something, that it's not worth working with them in my opinion. So I have said, uh, thank you, but no, thank you. I don't always sign, you know, every contract. Yeah, you can't, right? Exactly. Yeah. You have to look out for your own best interest down the line. Have you ever had another author that you've formed a relationship with come to you and say, would you read this for me and let me know if this is a bad contract? Um, I, Myself have not, but Brian Keene um, has said many times at different conventions when he was starting out, he had just met Jack Ketchum. I forget which convention, but um, uh, Brian was at the bar or Jack was at the bar and Jack invited him over and he said, um, let's have a drink because Brian had a lot of questions about a contract that seemed very promising for one of his first novels. I mean, this was years ago because Brian is very established, very prolific. He's got a great fan base and, uh, but not to go off too far on a tangent. And Jack took out a red pen and he, he read line the contract that um, Brian had because it was back in the day where people still carried around paper contracts <laughs> um, at conventions if they wanted advice. And uh, so so Brian was eternally grateful. And I think Brian bought 
Jack a drink or, you know, to say thank you. And uh, he did. He requested the changes that Jack had suggested to the contract. And then he, he got what, what he wanted. Brian. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever received in your writing career? It would be uh, write every write every day if you can, and if you can't, at least read every day, because some authors have uh, more before the pandemic, but they had full time jobs and they they couldn't write every single day. Um, but I uh, I used to write every day, but my um, day job sometimes I'm. Um, onboarding a new client, which actually I was the other day. So I didn't get any writing done yesterday. Uh, today I'm going to do an hour before I um, switch gears and, and stream some stuff on uh, HBO Max or something. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there there are nights, especially if there's an open call for an anthology that's only a few weeks or even a month. I'll, uh, I don't have to stream something every night. I mean, my brain would be mush if I was watching Netflix, right? Or Amazon Prime Video. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll do a marathon running session that's at night, you know, for four or five hours. Um, I'm more creative at night. I'm a night owl. But I find if, if an editor wants revisions back by a certain date and if I have to work on it during the day, I'll, I'll do it in the evening. Uh, my, my logical brain is more active during uh, the morning for clients and, you know, things like that. And the more the creative side at night. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Go to the dark side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That makes sense. And you, you did mention open calls for anthologies. When you see an open call for an anthology, how does that work? Do you contact, so you submit your work for, for an anthology or what's the process there? Sure, it varies. Um, but a lot of publishers, I actually, I'm not on Facebook. I never saw the appeal. But on Twitter, a lot of publishers, including um, Kandasha Press here, uh, for the one that got away anthology volume three, I saw an open call. Um, it might not have been on their Twitter feed. I think I might've gone to their website under submissions. It was over a year ago, uh, but they loved my story. Um, the story is set in New York city. It's entitled cold comfort. Hmm. And, uh, again, that's an all female, um, TOC and authors who identify as female for me to clarify as well yeah there's about 30 stories uh so uh and uh, quite a range of work too uh our our individual interpretations of the expression the one that got away oh that sounds like fun yes yeah <laughs> that's gonna be great and how important is an editor very important um uh, because I find I don't do so many typos as like grammatical or spelling errors. I mean, I do occasionally. I'm not perfect, but more of my lapses are in logic. You know, like I might have a character um, sitting in the beginning of the story and then he's running like down a, a New York City street and we don't know why until I get called out on it by an editor. Developmental editor is for me is more more important. In fact, invaluable. 
so is how important is it to find the right editor or is it do you have to do you have to form a relationship with someone or just kind of be on the same page or do you just grab one and and go or does it matter or are they pretty much all the same oh no no it varies like uh if a story of mine is accepted to an anthology they you know they have their own editor i can't i can't bring in like an editor from like that i know oh, from my yeah. writers group um but i actually have helped uh another writer in my writers group edit her her novel um during covid and and like i was saying developmental edits this was like last year when i hardly had any of my clients for various reasons reasons so she was uh helping to keep me sane by asking me to to edit uh her novel and you know with everything going on she's still has it on the back burner but she's going to come back to it um but for me, I, uh, I mean, I might confide in another writer in my group to, to have them, you know, like give a story a once over, I guess a lot of people would call that a beta reader. Um, hmm. so, uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of how I work with regard to editors. Either the publisher has their own. Or before I'll, I'll submit something, I'll um, run it by an author who I trust. Mm -hmm. So when you when an editor comes back with things that they want to see changed, do you have control over that? Do you, can you say, no, I, I want this this way because of X, Y, and Z, or do they have final say? Um, for the most part, <laughs> excuse me, they have final say, but... Um, there have been a couple of my stories where it was was something that was regional. Um, one of my stories takes place on Long Island, and it was like the layout of a, a park that exists. And it was a story that takes place in the winter, so I had to explain to the editor that it's just how like the, the park is laid out and it actually works for the story. I don't want to give too much away for that story. It's been published, but... She agreed. We met halfway. Um, but for the most part, I, I will defer to the editors. We'll do the edit track changes in Microsoft Word. Hmm. Yes. And do you see got reviewers? I do. Um, I mean, I don't make a, it's not a full-time job for me, but uh, what I do is I'll see where other authors are getting like um, a, a, a review and, uh, and then maybe a complimentary podcast like this. Mm -hmm. And then I'll introduce myself to that reviewer. I'll send them an email or if I follow them on Twitter, I'll DM them, direct message. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they don't have to say yes. And sometimes they don't, or they say I'm backlogged until the end of the year, which is actually kind of fast approaching. The year's <laughs> already half over, right? 2021, hard to believe. It is, yeah. Um, so so I've had that happen where maybe they'll say yeah, yes, but it's not going to be until the end of the year or next year. So, I mean, I'm willing to wait because uh, some of them are really well known and uh, respected in the genre. So I, I do seek them out. Um, if I see 
that they're tweeting something on their feed or another author who writes in a similar subgenre as I do. Like I said, I, I write mainly crime and my horror actually, I've had ghost stories published. I've had psychological horror. I've had, um, a story in a gore anthology. Actually, let me touch on that. Um, the <laughs> anthology is, uh, excuse me, called Gorefest. And um, I actually found the publisher uh, after doing a podcast with another author last year and noticed that uh, he uh, published with them. And uh, so they had an open call on their website. And the editor liked my story, but he uh, he asked me to revise it. My my story is uh, entitled 38 Special. It's Russian roulette gone wrong, you know, because Russian roulette could turn into a cliche in and of itself. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll 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 tell you what I did with it really quickly. So um, this. Uh, woman has cheated on her husband and uh the husband gets a hold of of the guy uh she cheated with well first of all when they're playing russian roulette the the gun goes off and it it kills the woman heather hmm. and then so the lover you know was like a bat out of hell out, out of the house when that happens and it turns out that the husband um is an IT specialist. There's actually an app uh, for the iPhone. I forget the name, but it's in the story. And I looked it up. It's a real app, you know, where you install and the person doesn't know that they're being monitored and the other person can see all of their texts and social, etc. So the uh, that's how the husband knew she was having an affair for sure. He had like suspicions. So he takes the, the guy and he, uh, gets a hold of him in, in real life again and he ties him up in his garage, which is soundproofed because his, his son has a band, you know, like the kids, teenagers. Yeah. And because uh, the guy is, Charlie's the guy who was cheating with Heather and Brad is the uh, husband. And so, uh, you know, Charlie's trying to scream for help and then, you know, Brad's like, oh, no one's going to hear you. So, you know, they... They're gonna play Russian roulette, except Charlie's tied up, so Brad's gonna like, like take his turn, and um, no, he's gonna he's gonna keep clicking it just just on on Charlie, uh, except uh, Brad has really bad allergies, and we I foreshadow that by the cat coming into the garage, and then Brad has he picks up the cat and he tosses the cat in the house, except. I don't know if you have pets, but you know, cats shed. And then, so the cat's furs all over Brad's jeans. And then later he has a, an uncontrollable sneezing fit. And unfortunately for him, the gun discharges and it, it ricochets off something in the garage and then it, the bullet kills him. <laughs> and then we still have Charlie who's got to get out of the garage. And so, um, Brad was not really skilled at tying the knots when he tied up Charlie to the, to a chair. And so Charlie's like, you know, like getting out of the knots the whole time they're talking. And uh, something else I looked up is cause I'm an, I'm a city dweller for over 20 years, but 
if you have an automatic garage door opener, they, they have an emergency like manual release. Mm-hmm. And so I, I watched a YouTube video on how it works to use it in the story. And so uh, Charlie sees that when he's tied up. And then I, I have the, the languages like, you know, it's like a, it's like a rip cord, you know, if only he can, you know, get to it. And, and uh, you know, it's like in, in film, when you have anything in the first act, whether it's a cane or a gun or a knife or, um, you know, like an apple peeler, it's in the first act, it's going to be in the third act. So I follow that uh, in my writing. And so the allusion to the to the red cord, you know, that's that's how Charlie gets out of the garage after he gets un, untied. <laughs> and then he hightails it home. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a fun story to write. It was actually inspired by the movie The Deer Hunter, which I saw when I still lived with my parents, fresh out of college, my father had rented it, or maybe I rented it, I might have rented it, because uh, I heard what it was about, and, you know, I wanted to see how they play that out. I think they're either Vietnam vets, or they're, no, they're still in Vietnam, or they're, it's after Vietnam, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, that was the uh, inspiration, partly was that movie, and also my, personal. personally, I have severe allergies, and sometimes I'll have a sneezing fit. <laughs> So, so the editor loved that he he requested a revision, but then it was kind of awkward because I emailed him and this was in March of this year. He requested the revision and I said, okay, when do you need it by? Because I have other projects, you know, I'm also a freelancer and he didn't tell me. And then in early June, I get the nudge, like, where's your revision? You know? And so um, I, I banged it out in like two days because he was, basically saying I want it now, but not saying it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but I got it to him in enough time. And then he, um, it's up for pre-order on Kindle and then the uh, paperback's going to come out in the fall. Oh, good. Yeah. So. Yeah. Just check that one out. Yeah. Thank you. And what are your thoughts on content warnings? Oh, you mean trigger warnings? Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally do not, uh, post them on my website or most of the publishers I work with, to my knowledge, do not use them. But now with everything going on in the world, um, there's actually been some backlash uh, a few months ago. I think it was, was when it was like really flaring up on social that authors really should have a trigger warning on their stories or on their website. And, I still haven't done it on mine. I mean, I'm a horror author. I also write crime fiction. Um, my trigger warning should just be there will be blood. <laughs> I don't mean to make light of it. I'm sorry. It's just I personally don't do it, but I do understand how it could um, affect certain individuals if, if in their life at one time they might have been suicidal and they recovered. Mm-hmm. Or they might have had a loved one who who um, over OD'd on drugs, or someone died in like a, a machine accident, like like in the country, like like one of those one of those big machines, the wheat machines with the, right. the rotors and something like that. Um, so yeah, I uh, 
I would be open to it if a publisher I work with in the future said, yeah, we just need you to put a trigger warning on your story or your novella. Um, I would, but I think the other side of that coin is a lot of people feel it kind of spoils the surprise of the story mm-hmm. or like the, the mechanism of death. Like, you know, was it a, a murder? Was it a homicide? Um, like I have another story. It's not published yet. It's a novella. Actually, it's a dystopian novella. And, um, I wrote it before COVID and I wrote it before Trump became president. And I mentioned this all because it's, um, set in a world where they have to separate the wheat from the chaff. But by that, I mean the rich and the poor. And I know it's happened before. But uh, in my story, what what they do is they have a feast and it's kind of like um, in New York State, we have a lottery and they have like Powerball and it's like a bingo machine and the balls are, you know, like all popping in the air and then they one of them gets sucked through the chute, like there's six of them or something. And so I, I did my riff on that. Um, and so the winners, everyone in this village has to gather when like a siren goes off. Because where I grew up and where I am now, there's a siren. It actually went off earlier in our conversation. I don't know if you noticed it. Yeah. It's going to be hard to edit out. But that's that's like part of the mystique of the horror writer, let's say. Um, so the siren um, here goes off when there's a fire and the fire department, local fire department has to go out. Actually, every day at noon, they do it also for whatever reason. But, you know, that I grew up here, um, and so it was ingrained in my, my brain that that might be, like, a good device in the story. So, like, in this story, my novella, every time a siren goes off in this village, they uh, all the villagers have to gather in, like, a town square. And uh, But then I've seen a lot of concerts in real life, so then there's, like, a big stage and... It's this big spectacle. It's called The Gathering, which, like, isn't even 100% original. But uh, the two winners, uh, they have drones, and the drones drop drop the balls uh, because they, the people have to catch a ball. And uh, it's also kind of like a homage to the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the Golden Ticket. Yeah. Which I actually had in an earlier draft of this novella, but then when I would pitch it, agents would say, oh, it seems like a kid's book because you're referencing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I'm like, oh, whoops, okay, I gotta change that. Um, And also, like these, think about it, drones releasing like ping pong kind of balls, like compel people too. So then they're, they're, they're knocking out some of the people already. And so the people who go to this feast, they can eat any food they want. There's like famine in this village, like they can, people can barely eat. So when they win and they get the ball and the ball matches what they call the stage at the spectacle. And they've got like the big flat screen TVs on the stage and, and it's all this fanfare. Um, but not, not to talk about the, the novella the whole time, but it's kind of relevant is it's kind of scary because a lot of other authors have predicted things that have happened in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, oh, I know what I was getting at. The mechanism of death in this in the novella is um, that the salt shakers have cyanide in them. 
And I actually did a lot of research. I love research. I did research about cyanide. What does it look like? I'm not going to buy cyanide, you know? So you can just Google it and get images. And it's actually like a, a dirty, it's like beige. And so they have sugar in the raw. I don't know if you use it. I used to use it, but now I use Trevia, which is like from a stevia plant. It's even healthier. Yeah. But see, sugar in the raw is brown. And so uh, on the table at this feast, they have like salt shakers. And so almost everyone but one little girl is is eating like crappy food. They're putting salt on it. The salt shakers have cyanide in it. So the the goal was like for everyone at the feast to just die gorging on all this food. And if their stomachs don't explode, they're going to die from cyanide. Then I looked up, how do you die if you ingest cyanide? It's like you suffocate and like you foam at the mouth. And, wow. and it's like, yeah, I actually got hungry writing the story because these people who are starving want like cherries jubilee and they want like filet mignon and, and the oh, oh and the twist is the the overlord of this whole maniacal scheme his nickname is big kahuna and he actually grew up really poor um and you know now he's a control freak but he loves sushi and he loves sashimi so um at this at the feast the one girl who who eats healthy food that doesn't require sugar or salt um and the cyanide just looks like the, the father says to one of the kids, oh, no, that's um, that's uh, sugar in the raw. It's healthier. <laughs> you know, like they think it's like sugar or something. Um, and it, it, it all it all works well in Novella. It just hasn't had found a home yet. But it is out somewhere, so I don't want to reveal the title. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the twist at the end of the novella, since I've told you so much already, and uh, – it might be six months before it's out there, you know, when it does get picked up. But so the little girl, she uh, she serves the big kahuna guy some sashimi. And when no one is looking, she takes one of the salt shakers and she puts the cyanide on top. And then she hands it to him and she says, bon appetit. And that's how the novella ends. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. Yeah, he gets his just desserts, pun intended. Um so, so yeah, uh, a lot of other authors I know, they've written stories unintentionally that were published right when the pandemic started that were like kind of in one way or another about a pandemic or about masks, like figurative and literal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> what a world now, right? Yeah, it has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. For you, For what's, you what's, what's the, the appeal, appeal of writing horror? I grew up uh, Catholic, so those some of those Bible stories are downright scary. That would be one inspiration from an early age. Another would be um, when my brother, mother and father and I were visiting an aunt one weekend in Kingston, New York. We drove there for the day. Um, she handed me uh, two of Stephen King's novels. I was 12 at the time. She handed me Cujo and Pet Cemetery. So those are the two novels I, I said, uh, she, I read first. Sorry, she said, oh, honey, I think you'll love these books. This author writes scary stories. <laughs> and luckily, my parents were cool with it because, like, the cover of Cujo in the uh, 
in the eighties was like, you know, the St. Bernard, the teeth and like, you know, like open like this. And, you know, you would think that that might be a red flag from my parents, but <laughs> luckily they didn't, they didn't have a problem with it. And I've been reading his, uh, novels ever since i don't think i've read read everything he's written because he's so prolific but i did just buy his uh novel later hmm. at target the other day i started reading it the other night so uh good stuff as always yeah so those are the main reasons why i write horror cujo yeah, I don't remember if I read Cujo or Pet Cemetery first because it's like I'm not 12 anymore, but it's a long time ago. But um, I wanted more, you know, I didn't get scared. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, writing a, an effective short story is difficult because you have to get the reader engaged and give them a story that they're satisfied with in a short period of time. How do you write an effective short story? It varies. Sometimes I'll start out with the title and then I'll uh, build my characters around a title. Uh, for example, a story I had published way back in the um, late 90s was entitled Dead Eye. Dead Eye is slang for like an expert marksman. I looked it up just to be sure what the meaning was. So I actually started writing the story based on just that expression dead eye and it's been published so i could summarize the plot really quickly it's about a young boy who um his father hunts in the woods and so he wants to be like his dad and um he starts out with the bb gun at the state fair and he wins like a prize um you know like the guy the guy is at the fair is like wow you know in awe and uh then the boy takes his father's uh, rifle out without his permission. And uh, there's a lot of Easter eggs in my stories and novellas. And the Easter egg in, in the story Deadeye is that, um, again, I wrote it when I still lived on Long Island full time before I moved to the city. There was a um, shooter on the Long Island Railroad. Hmm. Um, I think his name was even Colin Ferguson. I don't know if I'm remembering his name correctly. But, you know, that sticks with you, especially when I was taking the train into the city because um, I was working in Manhattan and I was young enough where I could tolerate like three out four hours a day round trip. But now not so much. Um, so uh, the boy shoots up a train mm -hmm. with his father's rifle and it was before iPhone. So in the story, um, he's got a camcorder and he takes it out and he puts it on a tripod and he, he films himself shooting up the train. And then he, uh, he goes and he brings the tape back to his father. But before he could play the tape, it's on the news that someone shot up a train. And then, you know, the son's like, like, yeah, that was me. And then he's like, oh, are you proud? Because, oh, I forgot to mention that the boy, um, shoots a squirrel um or a chipmunk and then he doesn't kill it and so his father's not impressed so he says you know ne next time you better bring me something that's dead so he, he shoots a squirrel a few days later and the bb gun the bb it was a bb gun i guess and it gets lodged in the squirrel's eye and uh so that's foreshadowing that's the first act right so in the third act 
the father is furious and he, he uh, grabs the rifle from his son and uh, he the safety isn't on or it's I forget I don't think rivals have have safeties really so I was called out that I have to know my guns better <laughs> I had the story published and I referenced a gun that didn't have a safety but I said it had a safety I don't think rifles do so let me correct myself but uh, so the father um, when he has the rifle he grabs and, and his trigger finger he's got like a wily trigger finger from like being a hunter I guess and he uh, oh I know what it is the son reloaded the rifle after he took it out so his father wouldn't know because it's usually like not loaded in the garage so the father grabs the rifle and like like by the trigger and he kills his own son with it because he didn't know it was loaded and the bullet lodges itself in in the boy's left eye oh like the squirrel so he's no better than the prey the predator becomes the prey there's a lot happening there. Um, so that was a fun one to write. It was actually also inspired by one of Jack Ketchum's um, stories, The Rifle, mm-hmm. which uh, was published in Cemetery Dance magazine eons ago. And it was very flattering because I was actually in an anthology with Jack Ketchum entitled Funeral Party 2. came out in 1997. And so Jack had read my story because we're in the same book together. And he said, I, he said, I really loved your story. It was well done. And, and that's very gratifying. A living legend, you know, telling me that first of all, and I'm a woman, right? So, you know, um, and uh, he's like, uh, I said, it was inspired by your story, the rifle. And he said, oh, I could definitely see that. So that was really cool. <laughs> do you believe in writer's block? I do. Um, yeah, like a lot of writers, I won't say every writer, because some writers I know didn't be, were not affected when the pandemic hit. But for me, I couldn't write for uh, a good two months because, you know, the news was bombarding us with, you know, like in New York City, we were on lockdown and for quite some time in 2020. And, uh, it was too much to process to see all these shops, you know, like are closed, restaurants are closed. You can't go anywhere. And so I, I couldn't be creative until I like wrap myself around this new reality. Um, so I do, I, I do believe in writer's block. And uh, even now, now that we're kind of in the new normal, hopefully not forever, but um Sometimes I'll get writer's block and it might be because like I said, I was onboarding new clients the other day. Um, They pay a little quicker than the publishers. So they sometimes become my primary focus for a couple of days. So it's not necessarily writer's block per se, but it's, it's that I can't get into my creative headspace long enough, maybe on a certain day. So yeah, I do. I do have times where uh, I can't be creative on a certain day sometimes because of deadlines, or it might be more than one day. And how do you deal with negative feedback? Well, everyone is entitled to their opinion, is what I like to say. Some writers, authors go to pieces if they get like a 
negative review on Amazon or Goodreads or which Amazon owns Goodreads, but so they're pretty much the same entity or Barnes and Noble or even at a con or, or uh, a reading and uh, someone might have a snide remark in real life, which could be more hurtful. Hmm. Um, actually, that happened to me. I read a story of mine that was published um, and it's, I guess you could call it a quiet horror story. It's uh, entitled, um, it, it was in uh, an all another all female anthology called Frightmare that came out in like the mid 2000s. And um, I actually, this sounds arrogant, but since I've, I have so many titles out there, I forget the exact title of it. <laughs> but the plot was based on real life again. Um, on the news, there was this uh, girl, young girl who had, uh, I think it was cerebral palsy where, where the, she was in a wheelchair all the time and like she, you know, her hands were like this, she can't do a lot. And so her father um, took her out to his van, like in the garage, and then did the hose and was for the carbon monoxide to fill up mm -hmm. the van and like killed her that way because she couldn't have like a quality of life. So I wrote a story around that, but mine takes place right before Christmas time. And, uh, oh, it's called Snow Angel. There we go. <laughs> it's coming back to me now. Because <laughs> the father makes a snow angel for the girl who's paralyzed in a wheelchair. And he takes food coloring. So it actually looks like his daughter. Like he takes yellow for blonde hair because the daughter has blonde hair. And like pink for her jacket and like blue for her pants or whatever. And um it's it's a story that people who are parents said it really got them in all the feels and i'm not a parent but um based on seeing that news story actually years before because like i had to process it to like make it like real because then there's the father who kills the daughter but the wife obviously is against it and uh so they argue about it and then they uh they all go out in the backyard as a family and like the daughter sings hark the herald angels sing and all this angel imagery you know it's no angel etc um but uh so i read that in a live reading and one of the audience members is like when i was done i think right when i finished he like even shouted he's like that wasn't horror hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, that's really but another author defended me and she said yes yes it is it's quiet horror it's not splatterpunk there are different subgenres she was explaining to this uh, audience member um and then he uh slinked away <laughs> <laughs> rightfully so yeah so um there you have it wow mm -hmm. and I always wonder, especially with horror authors, have you ever experienced, a, have you had any paranormal experiences or heard of any stories from people you know that have inspired stories you've written? Uh, I did have a couple of paranormal experiences. And um, one of them I turned into a story that's coming out in an anthology. So I won't give the title of the story or the anthology. But I will say that my first apartment in Brooklyn was my grandmother's apartment and I took it over after she um, moved into a nursing home. Um, you can do that and you get a discount because your family and if you have paperwork. 
So um, her apartment was, I'm pretty sure there was a ghost because like at night I didn't have any pets. And then like, if you have a pet, you know, or even like a, your spouse, like sitting on the bed or getting into bed and then mm -hmm. you feel it. And then that would happen very often <laughs> after, after my grandmother passed away. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't a, a malicious, uh, ghost, but, um, another real life, uh, occurrence was when my father, right before he passed away, I had moved to a different apartment in Brooklyn and Park Slope, a nicer neighborhood. And um, I don't know if you ever watched that television show, Celebrity Ghost Stories. It used to be on Bio, and that whole network Bio went away. Um, but anyway, there were these you know famous people we know from film and TV, and a lot of them said if they saw a spirit, it was like an orb. You see an orb, mm -hmm. a, a white circle. And um, I was shutting all the lights off before I went to bed in my apartment and then in my living room, I saw an orb and I, I stopped and I looked at it and it was actually like hovering, you know, like you see in the movies mm -hmm. and uh, for like, I guess a couple of minutes. And um, I think that was like my father saying goodbye. I had actually of course seen him in the hospital, um, but then I, I couldn't get back out to Long Island to see him when he was in hospice. He was only in hospice for a day. Oh. Yeah. And he passed away 10 years ago now. But um, I think that was him saying goodbye, like the orb in my apartment. I didn't talk to it, but I, I acknowledged it. And I wasn't afraid. And I just looked at it, you know. And mm. so, yeah, that those were my, my main uh, paranormal experiences personally. I've heard, I've heard a few, a few stories, stories like that. Like people, people, when, when someone they love passes away, away, they have, they some, have kind some kind of, kind of experience of after. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, do you leave secrets or Easter eggs in your in your books for people to find that you know about, but you wait and see if someone will catch it? Yes, I do. Um, one thing I do that you really have to be a hardcore fan of my, my work to, to catch is I'll reuse lines from uh, metaphors from my uh, from one story to another, um, but also pop culture uh, Easter eggs. If that's that's what you're referring to, I think, right? Well, no, if even if it's uh, plot lines or characters or uh, quotes or like you said, lines that you've used previously. I do use the lines I've used previously. The story uh, in the one that got away anthology, uh, cold comfort. Um, there's a line, you have to read the story, I won't quote it, uh, but then I used it a few years ago in another story set in New York City, um, which was also published uh, in uh, one of my collections. And I do uh, a lot of pop culture Easter eggs, like um, there's uh, that movie Dog Day Afternoon. I don't know if you've seen it, but I uh, use that in my crime novella that's um, out with the pub publisher currently. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I won't tell you the name of the novella, but I, I do use a scene where the main female character um, had gone to a movie theater that exists in Brooklyn. I don't know if it's still there because of COVID, but it was called Nighthawk Cinema. 
And that's a cool name, right? In and of itself. And she had gone to see Dog Day Afternoon with friends one night. And then there's uh, gang gunfire. And she's an innocent bystander. And this happens all the time in New York City, unfortunately. And a bullet grazes her arm. So she's got scar and uh, it scares her. And so she goes and she uh, signs up for a conceal and carry um, training. Because if you're a woman and you want to carry a the Glock makes a, a baby Glock. They call mm-hmm. it a baby Glock. I went to their website. I did the research. The subcompact. Yes, yeah. and um, you could fit it in your purse if you're a woman or transgender, because we're in this whole other world, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, so the character carries it in her purse, and uh, she gives it. I, I love the name she gives it, but it's the name of the novella, so I won't tell you. But I will tell you, you can buy skins on these guns, like you can buy a case for your your iPhone, but it's for the gun. And uh, so there's one you can get, you can get a hot pink leopard print. So that's what she gets on her Glock. And I was telling an author at Comic-Con a few years ago about my my novella in progress at the time. And he said, well, yeah, that's great, but she has to get a gun permit. And so I had to look up what's the process for that. It takes like four months and you have to pay a lot of money. And then you have to do uh, training in a shooting range. You can't, you know, you have to have all this, all these credentials. Mm-hmm. So uh, I did all my homework, my due diligence. I learned about propellant and how these um, gun ranges have like these huge fans to suck out the smell of the propellant. It smells like rotten eggs, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I should have gone to a shooting range and actually fired a gun. But I've actually read horror stories where if you hold the, the gun the wrong way and it kicks the wrong way, like you could like bust your teeth or yeah. all kinds of crazy stuff can happen. So I was a little, believe it or not, I was too afraid to actually go and pay and, and shoot a gun. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I watched videos of, of, you know, like there's so much language around it, like shooting stands and you have to wear um earmuffs so like you don't go deaf and then like the goggles so like you don't shoot your eye out like a christmas story (laughs) so yeah i i'm a big fan of research yeah it's important i think it pays off absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, what would be something your readers would be surprised to learn about you uh let's see there's a couple of things um I have a twin brother, but my brother doesn't write. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I could give you. Uh, that I uh, am very tech savvy. I'm, I already told you what I do, but a lot of them don't know what I do for my uh, full-time freelance, but it's pretty full time. You know, I do online marketing for different companies. I worked with a cosmetic surgeon for years, but then he got FDA approval for a minimally invasive surgical device. So he didn't need me anymore. Um, But I I do online marketing for a restaurant in New York City that actually opened during the pandemic. Brave. Yeah, it's called Festival Cafe. I haven't eaten there yet, but I'm... uh, Gonna wrangle up some friends and we're we're gonna go. 
they have a, a great menu. Uh, and I, I actually do social media management for uh, authors, um, like their Instagram, their Twitter, um, and other other businesses. Like uh, I have a notary who's uh, and a process server who's a client, believe it or not. He has a website. Um, I've worked with photographers over the years. So, uh, wow. yeah, I guess I'd be surprised to learn that. <laughs> So when you uh, when you manage a, a social media account for an author, for instance, do mm-hmm. you take c- complete control of that account? No, it's it's partial control. Um, the author I just started working with has two books launching within two months of one another. So as you can imagine, she's feeling overwhelmed. Um, I mean, she gives me her login credentials, but she actually has two factor authentication, which is a good idea. Um, so I actually have to email her to ask her to, to, uh, send me the code that Twitter texts her, the number, you know, the number code (laughs) or else I can't get into her account. Um, but I don't do it every day. I, I, you know, sometimes I'll skip a day on her social because I have my own social. Um, and I actually didn't mention, but I, uh, excuse me, I co-managed the, uh, Twitter account for the, uh, New York chapter of the Har Rice Association with another author from our group, Alp Beck, also oh. uh, co-manages it. Mm-hmm. Oh, awesome! Yes, you you stay pretty busy. How do you how do you manage all your your time with your responsibilities and your uh, your other work you have in your writing? How do you, how do you balance everything? It it can be tough sometimes. Um, for example, I love my mother, but she's in assisted living. I mentioned it because she has memory issues. And um, she wanted to talk to me yesterday, but even though it was the weekend, I was onboarding the new social media author client. And so I I was kind of like, oh, I just, how are you? I talked to you yesterday. And then I was like, oh, you know, like, how are you? She just had some dental work done. So, you know, I'm like, how's your mouth? And but then she kept going. She didn't know I wanted to end the conversation. And I'm like, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you all about my weekend tomorrow. I'm sorry. I'm very busy. And she got, she got kind of miffed, but I wouldn't have time to talk to her every day. I talk to her every other day. And of course, if she has an emergency, that's different, but you know, like just to catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to compartmentalize my time. Like, um, like I said, I try to do client work mainly in the morning, but if if the deadline pops up in the afternoon or evening, I'll I'll do it, especially if the client pays me uh, up front for the month, like this uh, author client did. Mm-hmm. But usually that's why I, I just want to get a retainer because I one time I, I got bit in the ass because I took the money in full and then I got uh, a corporate job. This was like in 2007, but now, you know, now with the pandemic, it, it makes you wonder if there'll be any corporate jobs ever again. <laughs> yeah, you wonder that, don't you? It's a whole new world. It is, absolutely. Have any of you, have any of your perspectives or beliefs been challenged during your career? Um, yeah, I would say yes. I'm trying to think of an instance. Uh just like I said, holding my ground with a, a contract that I I didn't find acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I went back to the publisher and just over email and, and said, can we change it? Or I changed it. Um, 
I had the uh, professional version of Acrobat. It's now it's called uh, Adobe Acrobat DC or something, but it was another iteration. Not many people had it. So I actually edited the PDF contract and they were kind of surprised I was able to do that, number one. <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm like, yeah, either what I sent you or I'm afraid it's not going to work out. And I guess they were used to being authors jumping at the chance. And I'm just like, yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's got to be difficult at first, right? To say no when you're, especially when you're a new or a new writer. It was, but I, I had to um, have my own best interest in mind. Uh, the contract, one of the contracts I just got out of, actually, I, I will I will never do it again unless it's a sweet deal because it was a five-year contract. Mm. And then um, right before the pandemic, I actually had to have my gallbladder out in the city. And then uh, <clears throat> the surgeon actually moved it up a week, luckily, because I was in agonizing pain or else I wouldn't have been able to have the surgery because that's considered a general surgery. It's not like like, you know, like saving my life. So they wouldn't have done it. But I mentioned it because um, I was all set to contact that publisher to get out of the contract. But then I got sick and I had to recover and I forgot about the contract. So they had a writer in their contract that said if I didn't contact them by a certain date, they got another year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the year came and went and I wrote a very litigious sounding letter. And uh, I was going to send a return receipt requested, which I had to do like when I had a landlord issue in the 90s, but I didn't send it that way. And I, I, you know, I emailed it and I sent them a physical letter to show them I meant business, though. And this was last fall of 2020. And they said, uh, or May of 20, you know, around Labor Day, sorry, 2020. And then they said, well, you know, you, you missed it because you didn't write back at a certain time. But they said your rights are going to revert back in May 10th of 2021. And they did. I actually Googled that title, Rage of Redemption, Alphabet City. And uh, they took it off their website. And it took a while to go off of Amazon. Actually, it's still there, but it says out of print. I guess that's just what Amazon does. Hmm. But uh, yeah, no, the rights reverted back to me. But yeah, that was a, a hard life lesson. If I'm going to do a five-year contract, it has to be like a lot of money. And that one wasn't. So that was a, a hard life lesson. Yeah. Well, we live and we learn, I guess. Yes. Yeah. If you can spend the day with, with any author alive or or not, who would you spend the day with and what would you ask them? I would uh, have to go with Edgar Allan Poe because he's inspired a, a couple of my uh, short stories, one that's up and coming in an anthology that I dare not mention other than to say it's an anthology up and coming. Perhaps I've said too much, but uh, <laughs> yeah, just, just the language that Poe used and, you know, bruised and battered, nevermore, hark the raven and, and uh, you know, like the cask of Amontillado and, you know, all of his stuff, you know, it's just like, there's all, there's so much imagery. There's so much going on, a lot of, you know, tension and just to really pick his brain mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. That's a good question. That's a good answer for that one. Mm-hmm. Is, 
Do you think horror horror is a genre that's accessible? Could you be more specific? Um, is it for the average reader? I think there's there's some readers have this perception that horror as a genre is um, reliant on cheap thrills or cheap scares instead of it being and us horror readers we know that it's sophisticated and it's deep and it's there's a, there's a lot it's dense there's a lot to it but some it seems like some readers have this perception that there's it's it's too reliant on cheap cheap scares um do you feel like that's true or do you feel like it's a, an accessible genre for a reader and a, and a writer um great question no i would say the people who think it's just all cheap scares obviously number one are not well read um it's it's as accessible as readers want it to be um you know earlier when you were talking about trigger warnings uh you know some some readers are not going to read a story if they know it's a trigger warning and you know they had something go on in their life that is hits too close to home mm-hmm. or even some movies um there's an argument that even well, actually, a lot of shows have added trigger warnings, like The Walking Dead, um, which I don't watch anymore, but when I used to watch it, uh, Stranger Things with the, the strobe lights. There's actually a phenomenon. If you have a certain medical condition, you're going to have a seizure if you see like strobe lights, either in real life or even in the movie. Yeah. And uh, um, others. Oh, I, I was watching that. Uh, this isn't horror, but I was watching this little series on apple tv because it was free with my new iphone um physical like about the 80s you know like uh the aerobics craze and then the main character has an eating disorder Mm. or even the crown they had to have a disclaimer because um lady diana was uh, polemic right Mm -hmm. so uh yeah that's becoming more prevalent in in even movies and tv now uh now that i think about it but but yeah, to get back to what you're asking about horror being accessible, um, you know, I, I think sometimes people might even uh, dip a toe into a, a book like some of Ed Lee's stuff even was over the top for me, but I read it like Big Head. I don't know if you read Big Head back in the mm-hmm. day. Yeah, it's like starts out and like there's this mongoloid creature and he's like a uh, cannibal and there's like incest and all kinds of stuff is going on (laughs) (laughs) so yeah do you have a favorite uh book to movie adaptation uh boy it's tough to pick just one because i grew up watching movies and uh i started reading at a young age um Well, let's see. Um, even though Stephen King hated it, The Shining, I would say. Hmm. I, I know he's been interviewed and I either read an interview or saw saw him do uh, at a live event. I've seen him at some live events in New York City. And he said he hated the adaptation of The Shining with Jack Nicholson. And uh, but Shelley Long, the, the woman with those googly eyes. Like, yeah. <laughs> It's like I just remember her in the scene where he's coming through the door and her eyes. She's like, oh! <laughs> but uh, yeah, I thought that was um, amazing that movie. Also, it came out when I was really young, so it was almost kind of taboo. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and uh, even I figured out the, uh, you know, we, there's really, it's kind of hard to spoil that one. It's so old, you know, like red rum, red rum. I figured it out even as a kid. I'm like, yeah, that's murder. Yeah. Yeah. Before they said it in the movie, I was like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> create a mind at work. <laughs> Have you seen uh, or read um, Dr. Sleep? Yes. Uh, both. That was a, a great adaptation as well. Yeah, we watched it recently. Uh, our little our little book club. We watched the movie and then we came and we we talked about it. So it was a it was a good time. Uh huh. Cool. Yeah, that was that was pretty well done. Uh, for new writers, what are some if if a new writer came to you, what are the, some of the most common questions they ask you? Um, believe it or not, where do you get your ideas? Hmm. <laughs> I think it was either Stephen King um, or Robert Block. He has a quote, Robert Block, he said, uh, you know, someone said, where do you get your ideas? And he said, oh, I, I have a, a, a young boy's heart in a jar in, in my office or something absurd like that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that that I think that might be the biggest one that new authors, you know, I kind of cringe and I have to be polite, but you would think they would know better. <laughs> Pass that. Maybe yeah. I'm being a snob. Um, but that's how do you, the big one. Sorry. How do, you, how do you answer that though? I mean, what what do you say to that? I mean, how? Yeah, to be polite, I think I would say because um, I think someone asked me that at a reading, and I read an excerpt for one of my stories set in New York City, which is almost all of my work, but not all of my stories. And they said, "Oh, well, I get a lot of inspiration from New York City, just different neighborhoods, like Hell's Kitchen. That's where." Um, the story Cold Comfort and the one that got away is set. Um, it's like a grittier neighborhood or it used to be. And uh, yeah, I just say like people. I do a lot of people watching. Excuse me. And then I'll put people in my stories and it may be someone like an ex-boyfriend. Um, or it might be an old landlord who was crazy, like bad shit crazy, um, which happened to me. My last landlord in, in uh, Bay Ridge. She was this nice 80 year old lady and I would catch her in lies all the time. Mm. Like they raised the rent and uh, the son was like, you know, the handling all the business and I would just pay her every month. And he said, oh yeah, my mother doesn't work. And then I saw her a month later cause you know, she wanted to be all friendly and she was waiting outside the building. And she said, oh, I go, I go to work now. Cause she spoke the broken English. She was from Greece. And then I held my tongue and then I said to my brother, yeah, they're like such liars. So, you know, like she didn't really need extra money and it was, it was a little tighter. I made it work, but they raised the rent like $75. Hmm. Yeah. Cause in New York, when you rent, unless you rent stabilized, which I was for years, if you rent stabilized, they can only raise it a certain percent. But if you're not, like they could go to town, but they liked me, so they only raised the seventy-five dollars a month, but that adds up, you know, oh, yeah. on one income. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And since the start of the pandemic, how have you has your, your view or your process changed in writing certain stories now that we live in this new world? Yeah. Um I'm kind of shying away from at least in my new work from things that are dystopian because i did talk about earlier the dystopian novella i edited for a market um but i'm 
I'm trying to uh, to do maybe uh, more psychological, quieter horror stories um, as opposed to some of the splatterpunk stuff that I've I've done. I guess. Is it, it hits a little too close to home? Is that kind of just to have an escape? Is that part of it? Yeah, that's. I think that's a big part of it for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for readers too. I think um, even in the mid two thousands, when a lot of these uh, these war movies were coming out, they they didn't do so well. But I, I think people were just fatigued with with real war, and they just didn't want to go watch a movie about more. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to move because, like, the sun is reflecting off my laptop screen and blinding me. So (laughs) you get to see the living room. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Yeah, I think that was was all my questions for you. Oh, okay. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. And for people who want to find more about about you or want to find your work, where can they find you? Absolutely. Thanks for asking. I have a website. It's crimsonscreams.com. And then I'm on Twitter, Amy underscore Greg at Twitter. Awesome. And I'll put all those links down below for anyone to find you. Perfect. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It was a great time. I I learned a lot from, from our talk. So. Oh, great. Yeah. My pleasure. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye.